When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello there. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in nursing school and at the bedside. I am so, so excited about this episode today. I learned a ton of fabulous tips talking with Dr. Sagal, a urologist who is coming on the podcast to share some fabulous tips and information about troubleshooting and managing Foley catheters, things that as a nurse for more than 10 or 11 years, I had never heard before. So I'm really excited to share those with you today. Before we do that, let's take a quick minute for a listener shout out. This one goes out to Kaylee, who says, I just wanted to pop over here to say thank you, Nurse Mo. I am in nursing school and I bought Crucial Concepts Bootcamp on recommendations by a classmate. I'm still working through it, but I absolutely love the way it is set up and how efficiently things are laid out. It is helping me see what I already know and what I need to focus on. I don't start clinical rotations until August, but my confidence is much higher after starting this program and I will definitely be getting more courses. I recommend it to my entire friend group and school cohort as well. Kaylee, thank you so much for taking time to submit your feedback about how Crucial Concepts Bootcamp is helping you. I'm so, so proud of you. And like always, I encourage my listeners to send me an email when you get your license so I can celebrate with you. If you'd like to learn more about Crucial Concepts Bootcamp, which Kaylee mentioned, then I will link to that in the episode notes. You can also go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on courses in the menu bar. All right, so today I am super excited to have on the podcast Dr. Shallon Sagel, who is a board-certified urologist working in Western Pennsylvania and West Virginia, and he's absolutely fabulous. You're going to learn so much from him. One thing I really enjoyed about Dr. Sagal and talking to him is that he really clearly loves teaching. And he has a YouTube channel, which he'll talk about briefly when we get to the interview. But I just want to tell you, absolutely go check this out. It is absolutely fabulous. That YouTube channel is Eurocoach, U-R-O Coach, and you can find him on YouTube. So without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Sagal. Okay, so I'm joined here today with Dr. Sagel. So I'm going to let Dr. Sagel introduce himself and tell us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today and his areas of expertise. So take it away, Dr. Sagel. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Maureen. So uh, my name is Dr. Shallon Sagel. I'm a practicing urologist in Western Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Uh, we're going to delve into indwelling urinary catheters, how to deal with them, how to deal with troubleshooting them, how to manage them, because I think it's a super useful skill. It's something that is can can be daunting for nurses, and I just want to try to empower everybody. I'm also one of the founders of Eurocoach, which is a library of urology education videos on YouTube. Okay, very cool. So what is your YouTube handle before I forget to ask? 
Sure, it's at Eurocoach, so it's not a, a European bus. It's U R O C O A C H U R O C O A C H. Yeah. Okay, a European bus also sounds really great. Okay, so that's a great resource that I thank you for for sharing that. Okay, so you mentioned Foley catheter management, Foley catheter troubleshooting. So. Where do you want to start? You want to start with general management, and then we'll get into more of the specifics about if you've got an issue with an insertion or maybe an outflow obstruction, things like that? Sure. Yeah. I, I okay. think, yeah. I mean, some of the fundamentals, obviously, um, we try to keep catheters in for a very limited amount of time. Um, I think um, most uh, nursing uh, individuals know that, nurses know that. Um, you know, clean intermittent catheterization is kind of a, a, quote, cleaner technique than leaving an indwelling Foley catheter. But tons of patients in the hospital have Foley catheters, right? right. I mean, every other patient yeah. has a Foley catheter. And a common um, a common thing that uh, nurses have to troubleshoot is the catheter's not draining. What do I do next, right? Yes. And so uh, I think, and it's, it's stressful, right? You, you're there, you're with the patient. You don't know whether it's that they have low urine output. Mm-hmm. Is the catheter obstructed? Is there something else going on? Right. And the nurses are the first of the front line to try to figure this out. So I wanted yes. to try to give them some tools on on how they can start to think about this problem because it's it's you know something they may sh- may may face on every shift. But right. anyway, you know, I think one of the more useful things to to do, Maureen, when you're encountered with that situation um, as a nurse, is to just flush the catheter. And Absolutely. Sometimes. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, I always say as urologists, we're kind of like plumbers, right? So what you want to do is get um, a Tumi syringe, the same kind of syringe that you would use to flush a nasogastric tube with, um, and you use 30 to 60 cc's of fluid, uh, sterile water or normal saline. And what you want to ensure is you want to ensure that the fluid that you put in, you are getting back, right? Yes. Because that, that confirms that the catheter is in a hollow viscous. In this case, it's in the bladder. If it's not in the bladder, if it's um, in the prostate, or if it's blown up in the urethra, you're either going to see fluid immediately leak around the catheter when you instill the fluid in, or when you put the fluid in, it's not going to come back out. So I think that's a useful kind of first step for nurses to try to troubleshoot a Foley catheter, because if you can flush that catheter you can feel pretty confident that it's in a good position. And so an outflow obstruction is not necessarily the reason why that patient isn't making urine. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've, you know, I've done this a million times. I learned this as a brand new nurse because guess who called the doctor about a concern about urine output when really all I had to do was give it a good <laughs> flush because the patient had a lot of sediment in their urine and just giving it a good flush also just kind of helped maintain that catheter patency was one of those super embarrassing. I always say I learned things the really hard way, either really expensive or really embarrassing. And that was definitely one. So if anybody can... I do too. I do too. I do too. (laughs) So if you can avoid doing that, great. So follow Dr. Sagal's advice when you're faced with low or no urine output, get in there and try flushing that catheter. So something you said that was news to me and now is going to make me super paranoid whenever I'm inserting catheters in my male patients is that the catheter can end up inside the prostate? Yeah, yeah. Not that I've ever done that before. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I, I may have a few times, but, oh, but we, can usually fix, we can usually get ourselves out of jams as urologists, right? So one of the keys to try to um, figure that out, um, Maureen, is when, when 
anybody puts a catheter in, sometimes what will happen is, you know, you're uh, classically taught, whether you're a physician or a nurse, that you want to put that catheter in until you get urine out, right? Yes. I mean, that's, then mm-hmm. you know that you're in the right place. But sometimes what happens is that when you look at these catheters, if you ever take a Foley catheter and you inspect it, you know, there's the holes are towards the end of the catheter, but the balloon's actually behind it, right? Mm-hmm. right. So what can potentially happen is that you put that Foley catheter in and the holes have just gotten into the bladder, just gotten past the bladder neck, the, but, but the balloon itself is still in the prostate. So if you inflate the balloon prematurely, then yes, it can get inflated in the prostate and cause some trauma, which we can fix as urologists, but obviously you don't want to be in that situation. No. So the, the, right. But the trick that I usually tell people is that you always want to, quote, hub, H-U-B, hub the catheter. So you want to push the catheter all the way in until it meets the urethral meatus in men. Because mm-hmm. if you get urine out, and that catheter is hubbed all the way in, yes. you're almost certainly you're almost certainly in the bladder. So that's right. kind of the the way to ensure that, Maureen. And you don't have to be worried about going too far. It's just gonna coil up or what you Correct. know, just be in the bladder. And then when you inflate the balloon, you give it that gentle, that very gentle kind of pull to seed it, and then you should be good to go, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's a great point, is that you know, and I take that for granted sometimes. So if you push that catheter in and you push it in too far, there's no such thing as that. You're not going to push it in too far. It's just going to coil in the bladder. All the all the things, all the tools we use to operate in the bladder, uh, a soft catheter is not going to um, rupture the lining of the bladder. And that actually, you know, when you mention that, I'm just my gears are, are are moving in my head when you when you say that. One thing that can be confusing sometimes is actually when you put the catheter in. Um, sometimes there'll be so much lube on the tip of the Foley yep. that you, you won't get urine out. And it I, can be really stressful, right? I, I mean, was just like... <laughs> in this position a few weeks ago and we kept thinking, we're not in the urethra. We're, we're, we're in another spot. And we kept, oh my gosh, I think we did three attempts. Turns out the nurse that got it went in the exact same location we had. We just had way too much lubricant. And so there was just no urine flow. So really right, uncomfortable right. for the patient. That poor sweet lady had to endure us fumbling around for a good 30 minutes <laughs> to try to do this insertion. So that's that's a really, really good tip. So let's talk about that. So too much too much of the lubrication. I'm I'm assuming what you're saying is you don't have to, you know, glop it on there. Just a, a coating is enough. Yeah, I th- I think if you're going to err one way or the other, it's good to put more on there than less. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree with you. I think just making sure that the catheter itself is well lubricated mm-hmm. is sufficient than um, making it kind of making a glop of of lubricant yes. on the end of on the end of the Foley catheter. One little trick too, um, while we're talking about that, is let's say you put that catheter in and you've hubbed it. And you've you've put in so many catheters, and you're like, I know I'm in the bladder, but you don't want to fill up the balloon because you're not 100 percent sure because you're not getting urine out and the reason why is there's so much lube at the tip of the catheter one little trick that you can do is you can take the syringe um that had the lube in it that's usually in the foley kit and then just make that an air syringe so just Mm. um, pull back air and just push that into the foley catheter as if you're going to flush the foley catheter and guess what happens all that lube moves from the tip of the of the catheter, then all of a sudden you get a flush of urine back. So you have something in your Foley insertion kit 
that you can use as a, as a troubleshooting mechanism um, for this Foley catheter. So that's just one thing I wanted to tell people. I love that tip. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that and pretend. Yeah, go I can't, for it. I'm gonna pretend I thought of it myself. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I take credit for it. <laughs> no, that is an awesome trick, and it is definitely gonna come in handy. Okay, so what about hubbing in a female patient? Is that necessary? So it's not necessary in a female patient. Um, the distance, I mean, you know, as we talk, I'm thinking about how long the urethra is in a woman. Right. I mean, we're talking about just a centimeter or two. Um, so in reality, for you to be able to, as soon as you get urine in a female patient, you're in the bladder. Mm -hmm. And for you to be able to just anchor that fully in, you're going to have to push in a little bit farther. And then you're well within the bladder. So okay. um, that's that's not as much of a concern in women. I, you know, in practice, you know, for going on 11 years now, I don't think I've seen um a fully catheter balloon inserted in a or inflated in a, in a woman's urethra. So don't worry too much about right. that. Yeah, I, I imagine they would immediately complain of some pretty significant For discomfort sure. if you started inflating at that time. For sure. Okay, so I love these tips. These are great. Let's talk a little bit more about catheter insertion troubleshooting. There's, I'm just like, my mind is full with all the potential, you know, pitfalls and complications yeah. that you can have. It's not as yeah. easy on a real person as it is in the lab at school, right? So everyone has, yeah. you know, differences in their anatomy. And it's, you know, again, not always so easy. So can you go through some troubleshooting things? Sure. And, I, and if we you don't mention a couple, I've got a couple that I do want to bring up. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things um, I think, um, Regular Foley insertion is very well taught in uh, in nursing school in general, but oftentimes you'll hear, um, and you know, primary care doctors that are given this order, urologists that are given this order, or if they if a, if a catheter can't be inserted, uh, nursing right right really shows should should bump it up and talk to a urologist, talk to the MD on call, and say you know what to do next. And invariably, it's put a two day catheter in, right? Mm -hmm. Put a full, okay. put a two day catheter in. And um, I think that oftentimes us as docs just take for granted that people know how to put a QDA catheter in. And it's not necessarily easy. And I'll tell you why. Um, you know, these catheters, I don't know how many um, of the listeners have, have seen a QDA catheter, but essentially what it is, uh, when you look at a regular Foley, it's a straight Foley, right? It's a straight shot. Yes. It goes directly into the urethra, which makes perfect sense in women. The QDA catheter has a curve, a curved tip. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that curve in general is because it kind of contours to the shape of the prostate. So when, you know, when we're doing cystoscopies and we're doing cystoscopic surgery, uh, when we start um, going from the urethra into the prostate, into the bladder, we have to kind of drop our hand and force our hand up to get the scope into the bladder. And that's what a CUDE catheter does. It has a natural curve to it or a man-made curve to it, um, I should say, that will go with the contour of the prostate to land in the bladder. But the problem with it is that when you put a CUDE catheter into the urethra, how do you know which way the tip is pointing, right? Exactly. So I have no idea. Yeah, it's very difficult. And, and why why should you, you know? So when, when we tell people put a CUDE catheter in, they say, well, you know, I know when I put it in the urethral meatus, I know where the tip is. But now the tip's gone. The tip's in the urethra in bed. Mm -hmm. So this is, these are the two tricks that I want to uh, kind of disseminate to people so that 
so that they know where the tip is once they've been inserted in the urethral meatus. Number one, if you examine a catheter, um, you'll see this, um, what we call a vein, V-E-I-N, on the top of the catheter. It's like this dark line, okay? And that vein is always in line with the tip that goes upwards for a cute catheter. So when you put it in the urethral meatus, if you leave that vein upwards at the 12 o'clock position, you can be assured that the catheter is going in with a tip upwards, which is what you want with a cute catheter. That's number one. Now, some people say, I'm looking for this vein. I don't see any vein. I can see veins in arms, but I don't see veins in pulling catheters. <laughs> Um, but the other thing that you can remember is the balloon port, right? Where you fill up the balloon is always on the same side as the tip with the Foley catheter. So if you if you put that in the urethomiatus and you say, man, I don't know which way that tip is pointing. Is it pointing left, right, up, down? If you take your eyes back and you get the balloon port to be at the 12 o'clock position, and you push straight in, then that coup de tip is at 12 o'clock as well and, and going in the right direction. So those are the two things that you can use, two tools that you can use at the bedside tomorrow to be able to know which way the coup de tip is is po pointing when you put a coup de catheter in. Okay. And the, are these generally only used in male patients because of the prostate situation? Yeah. In, okay. in yeah, in general, Maureen, you know, for um, some women will have kind of a, um, especially in, in um, older women, they'll have sometimes a stenotic urethra um, and we'll use cute catheters because the urethra is such a shape that it's it lends itself to being being able to be can, cannulated with a, a, a cute catheter. Okay. But in general, it's for men. Yeah. Okay. I understand. Okay. Thank you for the clarification. I had yeah, never heard pleasure. that about the vein or the balloon helping you with your um, orientation with that catheter. So that is absolutely super helpful. Okay, what about some other, any other troubleshooting tips for catheter insertion? So one thing that's really important is um, for women, right? So we kind of take for granted that, oh, it's a woman, just put the catheter in. There's no, if the urethra is really short. It's going to be easy to put it in. But sometimes it's not about, their um, genital urinary anatomy, it's kind of their whole body habitus, right? If they mm -hmm. have um, issues with obesity or if they have orthopedic problems, it can be hard for them to get their hips up in the air, right? right. So yes. if you imagine when they're in a bed and a lot of these beds have, you know, all these different settings that they're in this big divot, right? And then yes. you're asked to, when these nurses are asked to put a Foley catheter in, it can be hard because you're trying to get underneath the divot in the bed to access the urethra to put the catheter in. So one tip is if you're having a hard time putting a catheter in, in a woman, the first thing I tell you is always get more hands on deck, right? Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid to ask other people on the floor to help you with retraction, help you with positioning, um, I had a resident that used to teach me when I was training that said, if you know you can't get a, a, a Catherine and a woman, it's always an effort issue, which isn't always true. Mm -hmm. But what it means is that, you know, the more the more hands, the better. So right. that's the tip. That's the first tip with difficult female Catherine insertion. The other is to try to use. I mean, I, sometimes I feel like we're we're like MacGyver, which is like a dating me. It's a show from the 80s. But oh, no, you I'm know, right there to, with you to try to get the pelvis. <laughs> you try to get the pelvis in a position where you can more easily access the urethra. So you want to try to use tools that are available to you, easily available to you. And there's bedpans on every nursing floor. So if you take a bedpan 
and again, get some other hands on deck and you can somehow um, get that bedpan underneath the woman and turn it upside down so that the big part of the bedpan is underneath their hips. It'll lift up their hips and they just they'll sit on that. And suddenly the urethra is popped up um, in a location that's more easily accessed. So more hands on deck and use a bedpan to kind of prop up the patient are some useful, useful tips for women. I've never seen that done. And I'm also going to use this trick at my very next opportunity. That sounds really helpful. Okay, what about a patient? This happened very recently. I work in the recovery room right now. We get a lot of patients after their hip surgeries. And depending on the type of hip surgery, they have some hip restrictions. So I had a patient who could not do any external rotation of their femur. So how what would you do in a situation like that where you can't really get the, you know, the thighs apart because right. of something like a surgical restriction or maybe just severe arthritis, which I've seen many times. Um, patients who are you know, in wheelchairs with severe contractures, very difficult to manipulate their anatomy and very uncomfortable for them. So any troubleshooting for that for maybe are there alternate positions or anything that can be utilized? You know, that's actually a very difficult. That's a great point. That's a very difficult situation, even for us as urologists, because it's a matter of really trying to maximize their contralateral mobility, right? So if they had, you know, a left hip replacement, you really want to try to um, within reason, crank on that right side on as that much right as you side, can. Yeah. yeah, to get to get as much retraction as possible, because that's all you can do. Obviously, you don't want to do anything to jeopardize the surgery that they just had. Mm -hmm. um, I have also, um, when you're in a difficult situation, I think the nurses should feel empowered to, you know, talk to the orthopedic surgeon and say, "Listen, we got to get the urine out of out of this person's bladder. How much is it is it okay to uh, externally rotate her hip or his, mm -hmm. his hip?" Uh, her hip when we do this. Um, and frankly, you know, they could even be there to watch how much you're rotating them with their aid uh, and their their guidance. You can try to maximize how much you can rotate the the, the limb that's just been operated on. So um, I think maximizing, um, you know, the contralateral mobility and then consulting with the orthopedic surgeon are the two tips I would give for that, Maureen. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What about, uh, I see this a lot. I saw this a lot in the ICU when I worked there. I see this a lot in the recovery room is continuous bladder irrigation. Yeah. And a lot of times when I take the patient up to the floor, if there's a nurse that has never worked with CBI before, they often have a lot of questions. So can you talk about what it, maybe the indications and what kind of patient would have CBI and how it's safely managed? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the first thing, um, so CBI is always, I shouldn't say always, is, I mean, emergency room doctors will initiate it as well, but very frequently it's initiated by the urologist, right? It's their desire mm -hmm. to to run irrigation through the bladder. And the idea behind it, just to talk about the general idea, and then we can talk about the way the catheter is constructed is, 
we're trying to run irrigation into the bladder to prevent blood clots from accumulating in the bladder, right? Yes. So, um, so a, a, a continuous bladder irrigation catheter has three ports. It has uh, an inflow port, which um, is on the side. It has the outflow port, which is a typical um, outflow port that you'll see on any Foley catheter. And then it's got a balloon port, which is um, the typical balloon port that you see on any Foley catheter. So really, the only extra port is the inflow port. Now, you'll know which one's the inflow port because it'll be slightly smaller mm -hmm. than the outflow port, and it'll be off to the side. It won't be a direct shot from the main Foley catheter. And that's where the irrigation goes into the into the catheter, right? And this irrigation is at the discretion of, I know the prescribing doctor, but usually we'll use normal saline uh, because it's, you know, isotonic with serum, et cetera. Um, so the irrigation runs in and um, then it comes out the outflow port. And with the idea that, you know, if the patient is having some blood in the urine from a bladder source or from the prostate, we don't want that blood to collect in the bladder because then they can eventually um, end up in clot retention. So if we can run irrigation in, in there until the bleeding stops on its own, then that clot will exit the bladder until the urine's clear, and then we can stop the irrigation. So that's the rationale for it. Um, now, one of the things that's really challenging with continuous bladder irrigation, um, you know, it's funny because I was just doing a surgery this morning and we acquired uh, continuous irrigation, and this happens in the operating room all the time, is staying on top of the irrigation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, nurses are busy, especially with the staff shortages in the whole country, and it's hard for them, you know, to manage the continuous bladder irrigation, even with their whole care team. So I think um, making sure you have a bunch of bags on the floor and mm -hmm. calling for them um, in advance is will, will help you, um, help make sure that it doesn't run out because depending on how fast the continuous bladder irrigation um, goes, you can run through a 3,000 bag just in a, in a few hours, you right. know, 3,000 um, TC bags. So that's, um, that's one tip I would give you. And then the, the classic thing is, what do you do when um, the catheter's not draining in the CBI patient? Now, this is mm -hmm. this is different than what we talked about at the yeah, beginning of the conversation. This is scary. Because, yeah, exa exactly, exactly. This is scarier because what's happening, um, just to you know, explain the plumbing behind it, I think a lot of people probably get it, but there's irrigation going into this person's bladder and nothing's getting out. So not only is the Foley catheter not functional, but you're actively putting them we're actively putting them in urinary retention. So step one, the catheter is not draining, turn off the continuous bladder irrigation. That is step one, okay? And then step two goes back to what we talked about initially, Maureen, where um, you, you want to flush the Foley catheter. Usually in individuals with continuous bladder irrigation, they're using continuous bladder irrigation um, because of hematuria, right? So um, very often they'll have a clot that's obstructing the uh, the outflow of urine. So um, simply flushing the catheter will get uh, get rid of the obstructive clot, and then um, you'll see a, a gush of urine. It's really satisfying, right? When you see a gush of urine come out uh, from the continuous bladder irrigation, and then you can start the irrigation again. Um, so that's the other tip for it. Yes. Yeah, and to that, I would just add just keeping really close eye on that Foley bag. You don't want that to fill up because then it could just backflow and now you're setting them up for retention and a UTI. Great point. So, Great point. Yeah. yeah, so having having your um, your collection device that you drain it into, having a couple of those handy and just being really aware that you're probably going to be emptying that Foley collection bag 
pretty regularly, every half hour, every hour or so. So of yeah. course, depending on how fast that irrigation is is coming through. So let's talk now. We talked about, you know, urinary retention when we're doing irrigation. What about a patient who you suspect has urinary retention or they're maybe not putting out any urine and you need to do a bladder scan? Let's talk about how to do that so it's effective. If anyone listening has done any bladder scanning, you know that it's very dependent on the technique of the person doing the scanning. So how can we get our best um, assessments using this tool? Right. Yeah, it's it's a great question. So, um, just to backtrack, one other tip that I would give you let's let's talk about the patient that has the Foley catheter and you're not sure if it's functional. Let's say you flush the catheter and you're like, I think I'm getting what I'm putting in back, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. You can use a bladder scan in that situation too, right? I mean, you can yeah. take the bladder scanner and put it on their abdomen um, and get a number on it. And if the number is zero, then you can feel more confident that you're when you flush the catheter, you were doing it properly um, and the, the bladder is being drained um, versus if you get a high number on the bladder scan. But um, so that's just one tip for tr- for Foley catheter troubleshooting. But I think what happens oftentimes with um, bladder scan is that, you know, not everybody's urologist and people don't always know where the bladder is. So I think uh, one tip is if you um, if you're with your patient and you feel for the symphysis pubis like their pubic bone, okay, mm-hmm. and you just go two finger breaths up from there, you're going to be right over the bladder. So it's it's oftentimes much farther down in somebody's body than people realize. Okay, um, I've seen, um, and it's not their fault, but I've seen people, um, you know, doing bladder scans around the umbilicus or in the mid abdomen, um, and that's really not where the the bladder is. So um, one tip is to try to feel for where the pubic bone is and just go about two finger breaths above that. Um, if the patient's obese, um, you want to try to use one hand to pull back their panis um, mm-hmm. so you can get a nice flat surface that you're doing the bladder scan on. Okay. Um, and then make sure you use, remember, this is an ultrasound um, transduction technique. So make sure you use plenty of lubrication um, where you're doing the bladder scan because you want to get an accurate reading. Um, so those are kind of the tips and tricks with bladder scans. One, um, and this is one thing that um, individuals can sometimes get confused by, and we can get confused by this as urologists too, is um, a pay, the, the nurses will call and, um, you know, they'll say the bladder scan's really high. It's 500, 600 cc's. And you're thinking about it and, you know, maybe you you know, maybe you've um, bladder scanned the patient before or you've catheterized them before. And for whatever reason, you don't think there's that much in, in their bladder. And if you get a good history, sometimes these patients with ascites or intra-abdominal fluid for other reasons, the bladder scanner will actually pick up that fluid, right? So it'll read high, but it's actually just um, the ascites that they're picking up in the abdomen. So that can be uh, one reason why the bladder scanner would be misleading, Maureen. Okay. I've never thought about that, but it makes perfect. It makes absolute perfect sense. So one more question about bladder scanning. Do you, and I always like have trouble with this. So do you aim straight down towards the spine or more towards the pubic bone? Yeah, I would aim straight down towards the spine. Okay. All right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what would be a worrisome bladder scan value? Let's say I've got a patient after surgery, for example, a lot of times patients have urinary retention after surgery, especially if they've had maybe like an epidural or something like that. And, and, you know, they're starting to come around, they're moving everything, but they're telling me I really have to go to the bathroom, but I just can't. 
I'm going to scan their bladder. When am I going to get concerned about the volume that's in that bladder? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think that you actually hit the nail on the head by saying when the when the patient starts complaining, right? Because mm-hmm. if they if they're complaining, then there's there's a problem. They they feel like they're not getting urine out, and everybody's yeah. bladder capacity is different, right? So I may hold five, six hundred cc's in my bladder. Somebody else may only hold two hundred cc's in their bladder. So, um, you know, urinary retention is a relative thing. If you have a, a smaller lady that, um, you know, only has 200 cc's in there, she may feel like she's going to jump through the roof. And that, you know, meets the criteria for, quote, urinary retention. Mm-hmm. Um, in our clinics, when we do a bladder scan, um, you know, it makes urologists happy when the number is less than 150. So okay. if, if that, if somebody's, uh, emptying their bladder, you do a post-void residual, and it's less than 150, you can feel pretty confident they're emptying their bladder effectively, okay? When it gets above 150, um, some people live with very high um, post-void residuals. So some people live with bladder scans, the post-void residuals, two, 300 cc's. When it starts to get that level, though, I get worried. I want to make sure that their upper urinary tracts are protected, that they're emptying effectively, effectively enough to not... Uh, cause any upper tract dilation, hydronephrosis, et cetera. I think uh, as a, as kind of the front lines with nurses, I think if it starts getting above 300 cc's, that's the time to kind of bump it up, talk to somebody and, and figure out the, the next steps. Okay. I, I'm just curious if you have any good tips for encouraging natural voiding in that patient who feels like they can't go. You know, we learn, you know, little techniques in school like, um, pouring warm water over the area or turning on the faucet, you know, things like that. Any, you know, helping the gentleman stand up. Are there any other little tips that could maybe help someone void naturally before we have to go to an in and out cath? Yeah, that's, it's really tough because usually those individuals are having um, multifactorial urinary retention, right? So yeah. somebody that's post-op, it's anesthesia, it's, they probably got some narcotics, they're in pain, they're immobile. Mm-hmm. So I, I think everything that you said are great um, first steps to try to um, get them to void. Yeah. Um, I mean, nobody wants a catheter. <laughs> right, yeah, no. And you know, we don't want to put catheters and they're yeah. an infection risk, but... So I think um, if they can, um, if they can um, ambulate, that's great. Um, if you can relieve constipation, that's great. You know, if they can limit their narcotics, um, all of these things. Now, some of these things can't be done in an acute setting, but all these things are going to help them be able to empty their bladder, quote, naturally, as you said. Right. Um, you know, Flomax, <laughs> you know, we, we prescribe Flomax all the time, but it can work pretty darn quick, too. Um, and a lot of some orthopedic surgeons will actually, for patients that are at risk of urinary retention, will give them a dose preoperatively uh, to promote their their bladder to ha- to empty postoperatively. So, um, you know, it, it may not work in seconds, but it can work, you know, within a couple hours. So that's another, you know, oh. thing to discuss with the MD. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great tip. I had this poor patient once who had to, had to avoid, you know, sometimes they go through avoiding trial with, um, and if they don't pass their voiding trial, we have to put the Foley catheter back in and they go home with the Foley catheter for a day or two. And this poor woman was not able to void spontaneously. And we were sitting up on the bedside commode for probably a good long while, maybe even up to like 30 minutes, 45 minutes. She still can't void. And, you know, if I'd known about maybe calling for something like that, that would have been really helpful for her. She ended up staying for hours because she just yeah, right, right. 
could not void. So, okay, very, very helpful. All right, let's talk a little bit. You mentioned a minute ago about infection. So we all know that indwelling catheters come with a really high risk of infection. So I want to talk a little bit about maybe early recognition. I mean, hopefully we don't get to that point because we prevent it, but early recognition of a UTI and how to maybe interpret a UA or a uh, urine culture so that you can call the MD, you know, knowing what you're talking about when you get those results back and then preventing it in the first place. Yeah, in the setting of a catheter, Maureen, or just in the in setting in the setting of a patient who has a Foley catheter. Yeah, right. So that's yeah, that's a very difficult situation, too, because invariably, if you take a patient that's had a catheter in for 24 or 24 or 48 hours, and certainly patients with chronic indwelling catheters, mm -hmm. if you take that urine specimen and you culture it, you're going to get bacteria. So um, invariably, they're going to have some bacteria growing into their lower urinary tract because their, uh, their sphincter is being bypassed with the catheter itself. Mm -hmm. um, so it becomes a matter of, do they have constitutional symptoms, right? So if are they feeling, what are some of the other symptoms of UTI? Do they have low back pain? Do they feel malaise? Um, is their urine acutely malodorous, right? Is it mm -hmm. smelling poorly? Do they have a low-grade fever? Do they have a high-grade fever? So do they have nausea, vomiting, and you can't figure out why? So it becomes very tricky when they have a catheter in because if you're not sure why they're having some of the constitutional symptoms that you're having, I think by all means, we should send off a urine culture and then treat it, especially if they don't have any other reason why they're having those constitutional symptoms. I think a urinalysis is very difficult to interpret in the setting of a Foley catheter. In fact, I probably would just throw the urinalysis out in that situation. Okay. But I think a urine culture does have utility, um, especially if they have some of the symptoms that I mentioned. Um, and we're not sure why. I mean, they don't have pneumonia. They don't have um, a URI, they don't have other issues in their body. And then we get a urine culture and we can't just chalk up that urine culture to just they ha them having a Foley catheter. You can obviously have a Foley catheter and a pathologic urinary tract infection. So I think it's it's worth sending off a urine culture in, in patients with an indwelling Foley mm -hmm. with other symptoms that we're not sure about. That right. makes sense. Okay. And then um, what about preventing a UTI? So there's lots of things that we do, starting with the sterile insertion. Any other great tips for preventing a UTI in a patient who's got an indwelling catheter in place? Yeah, I think the best thing is just to get the catheter out as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, um, you got to remember, uh, you know, nature made a way of, of having us having a urethral sphincter that, that is closed off. And, and now we bypass that with a Foley catheter. So there's it's it's very difficult to um, limit uh, somebody's um, uh, somebody's ability to get urinary tract infections when the catheter's in place. I think for patients with um, urinary retention or um, frequent incomplete bladder emptying, it's really worth considering doing clean intermittent catheterization or sterile intermittent catheterization rather than an indwelling Foley. A lot of people will think that um, doing intermittent catheterization is a higher infection risk because Make, it's it sounds intuitive, right? You're putting the catheter in and out, so you're you keep introducing bacteria, but uh, it's way less of an infection risk because you're not having uh, a continual bypass of somebody's urinary sphincter, right? You're only bypassing that sphincter when you put the catheter in to drain the urine out. 
Mm-hmm. When you take it back out, the sphincter's closed again. So that's one tip I would give people. Maybe bring it up with um, the doc. Hey, why don't we intermittently catheterize this patient? It obviously is more difficult for nursing staff to do it, um, but it can help limit urinary tract infections for sure. And then would that be done on a time schedule or based off bladder volume? Yeah, so um, you can do it either way. Certainly, is if somebody's not voiding, then oftentimes we'll put them on a time schedule every six to eight hours. Um, they'll get intermittently catheterized. Oh, that's not bad. I was thinking it would be like every two hours, which would be really hard to manage. So every six yeah, hours. Yeah, that's tough. That's every tough. six that's hours tough. would be would be. I, I feel think like that's that'd reasonable. Be pretty manageable. I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, everybody's different, but I think that's a reasonable time frame. But, you know, with bladder volumes, one of the nice things about intermittent catheterization, too, is it gives people a chance to do kind of a continuous void trial, right? So if you empty their bladder at time point A, let's say you empty their bladder at 8 a.m., um, now you've given them another chance to empty their bladder. Whereas mm-hmm. if they had a Foley catheter in, you really don't know what's going on with their bladder right. function. You don't know if you know their bladder has, quote, woken up after anesthesia, after their immobility, after their constipation has resolved. So it gives you the opportunity um, every time you intermittently catheterize them um, to to empty their bladder. So, you, you know, one of their um, one of the parameters could be, you know, intermittently catheterize the patient for post void residuals greater than three or four hundred, four hundred CCs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can do it either way. You can do it if they're not voiding every six to eight hours, like you mentioned, or uh, the parameter can be based on how much is left over in their bladder. Got it. Okay. Very interesting. Very good. Yes. We've got, you know, I started working in the ICU in 2011 and over that time, the use of indwelling catheters has just, I just watched it decrease dramatically. There was huge, you know, a huge movement to round daily, assess the patient's need for Foley catheters, really aggressively getting them out as early as possible. And now we've got all these cool external collection devices like the PureWick catheter yeah. or the external PureWick catheter, which is fabulous. So there's all kinds of other really great, great things out there now. Yeah, people can even have Pirouette catheters at home, which has really changed people's quality of life with the Absolutely. chronic incontinence. You know? Yeah, they can retain their independence for a lot longer, which is really, really great. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk before we go. I want to talk about two other alternate options or two other types of things that we might see from a urology standpoint that we might not get a lot of experience with, which would be the suprapubic catheter or suprapubic yeah, tubes yeah. and nephrostomy tubes. Yes. Yeah. So it's, so just uh, the general indications for that. So a suprapubic tube is typically put in an individual that um, has chronic urinary retention for a variety of reasons. Let's say their bladder stops functioning, their prostate is too large. We've tried to get them to empty their bladder and they can't. Um, and it's much more comfortable for them, right? Rather than having a chronic indwelling yeah. urethral catheter, which has all sorts of problems, not the least of which is urethral erosion. Um, so what we'll do is with the surgical procedure is um, put the catheter directly into the bladder through the anterior abdominal wall. Um, and that's what a suprapubic tube is. Now, um, um, I, it depends on where you are as far as whether nursing staff um, changes suprapubic tubes or not. I think they're certainly capable of it. Um, but it's it's essentially a Foley catheter with a more direct access point to the bladder. And that's the way you should think about a suprapubic tube. So you can troubleshoot it in the same way that you do a Foley catheter. 
um, flush it, um, you know, use a bladder scanner, all these things. Um, is, it's a very similar mechanism as a Foley catheter. And sometimes it's more convenient just because um, the, the catheter is sitting on top of their abdomen. So it's, right. it's, easy, it's easier to access. Easy to get um, to, yeah. One thing that people should know about a, a, a super pubic tube is what to do if the if the tube comes out. Now, um, provided you're at, you're at a place where there's success allowed to put the super pubic tube back in, it's beneficial to put it in as soon as possible once the tube is out because those super pubic tube tracts um, start closing up actually in a matter of minutes and hours. Oh, wow, yeah. that's some pressure. <laughs> Yeah, right. So, um, you know, I, I, people don't realize that because these a lot of times people think these tracts are so mature that they'll hang around for a few days. That's not the case. So it's important if you're going to kind of rescue that suprapubic tube tract and the patient avoid a future um, repeat suprapubic tube placement with anesthesia to replace the suprapubic tube as soon as possible. Um, so that's one other kind of tip and trick with, with uh, suprapubic tubes. Um, as far as the frostomy tubes go, Maureen, you know, that's, um, we could talk about upper tract stones and urinary obstruction. I could talk about it until tomorrow, but, you know, nephrostomy tubes are essentially a direct um, access point um, into the kidney to drain urine externally. Um, and, you know, we do accomplish that with ureteral indwelling ureteral stents, but for a variety of reasons, some people can't. Um, tolerate a stent or we can't place a stent. So a nephrostomy tube is a, a direct drainage from the kidney itself. When when nursing staff see the nephrostomy tube, um, in general, nephrostomy tubes don't need to be flushed. Um, but sometimes there are uh, orders to flush a nephrostomy tube. Uh, one thing you'll notice is if, if you are told to, to flush a nephrostomy tube and you put fluid in the nephrostomy tube, now this tends to be a lure lock type syringe a patient's going to experience some pain. They're going right. to they're going to feel the same type of pain as as a kidney stone, right? Because that's what that's what the pain is associated with the kidney stone. It's obstructing the flow of urine, and that back pressure on the kidney uh, is very painful. So y- you may see that phenomenon when you flush a nephrostomy tube if you're asked to do that. Um, so typically, we don't need to flush nephrostomy tubes. Um, they need to be changed out by interventional radiologists every three months or so, um, or until kind of their obstruction is relieved. Okay. Yeah. We would flush them in the ICU, but we would flush away just to keep the catheter patent from any or the two patent from any, you know, sediment or anything. Yeah, but great yeah, point. Flushing toward the patient would be ouch. That would be an ouch. Right. Okay. I have a Perfect. quick question about the super tube, pubic tube, because now yeah. I'm going to be, I don't know that I've ever had a patient with one, but of course, if I do, I'm going to be immediately suspicious that it's going to fall out, of course. <laughs> so, <laughs> If I don't, I, obviously, I don't have a spare tube handy. Can I grab a f- sterile Foley catheter and use? Yeah, that's that? a great. That's a, I should have mentioned that. So okay. what? I should have. That's a great point. So super pubic tubes are just Foley catheters. You oh, know, okay. when we put, yeah, when we put these tubes in, um, you know, every urologist has a different way of doing it, but we we put in. A classic Foley catheter. In fact, if you look in with a cystoscope, I actually just operated on a patient with a superpubic tube today, and you look in, you see the Foley catheter balloon from the inside entering the bladder, you know, from the percutaneous site. So that's all it is. So yes, to answer your question, you want to get um, a a Foley catheter uh, that's the same size as um, the superpubic tube uh, that's in place and just... um, put it in there and you have less distance to cover uh, usually than um, than with a typical Foley catheter placement. Okay. That's very interesting. All right. I'll have to, I'm going to 
ask one of the urologists next time I see them what they would think if we did that at the bedside or if they'd prefer we called them instead. But I love I love that tip. That's really great. Yeah, go for it. Okay, well, Dr. Segal, I want to thank you. These were I, There were so many great tips here. I've got some tools that I can use when I have a patient with a difficult Foley insertion that I cannot wait to use. And I just know that it's going to be really helpful for everybody listening as well. So thank you so very much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I enjoyed it. And I hope that it's uh, empowering to, to your audience. It, re- it really will be. And then I want to remind everybody to visit Dr. Segal's YouTube if you want to learn more about urology and care yeah, patients with urological conditions. And that's Eurocoach, not the European, but URO coach. And that is on YouTube. Thank you so very much. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Maureen. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.